Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I gotta get this out of, uh, what's called a speaker view so I can see all of you rather than me. <laughs> um, wow. I, uh, I'm so happy to be here. It's been a little while, maybe, you know, a few months here. So that's probably why I was all excited about this. Um, I, I, I hope you like the video because that's what we're gonna talk about, this wider frame of view. And Born I does a great job of taking Dhamma and bringing it into a language that's so accessible for us. And so if you haven't seen the video, if you came after it was over, then um, maybe Imago can put the link in the chat there and you can take a look at it afterwards. But Anyway, so let us begin with a sit. Uh, I'll give a little bit of instructions and then we'll sit for uh, maybe about 20 minutes and then we will um, um, have a little bit of a talk. So just to get yourself in a comfortable place here and feel the, um, the body in, you know, we're arriving in the body and in the mind. So first we start with the body and get a sense of where we're at. Feel the, the seat that you're sitting on or the, the furniture you're lying on. Have a sense of the temperature of the body. Maybe any sounds that are around. It's kind of an anchoring uh, arriving because all of this external condition is already present and so you're just turning your attention to it even if it's silence and there's no sound you're just turning your attention to the silence in the room the space in the room you can actually feel the felt sense of being in the room you're in and have a sense of it with your eyes closed. We're finding this immediate direct experience of this moment where you're at. And then you can arrive in the mind and bring the mind here to this space. It's not a long time. So we just bring the attention to this space, attention to where we're at. What does it feel like to be sitting? What does the room feel like? This kind of knowing where you're at. And you can bring your intentions to be here to practice, to stay here, to see what can be known if we just quiet down and focus our attention right here. So the body, we, we know where we are physically. We have this heart intention, this um, mental attention. We just steady our attention right here. 
And you could find an anchor. Could be the body sitting. Could be the body breathing. Could be the sounds around. But you let that be an anchor. anchoring your attention to this moment just keep coming back to this anchor your mind will wander away it may not be in the mood to just stay with the breath or stay with the body sitting but you just keep coming back and what you're coming back to is the felt sense of the body city, the pressure, the tingling, this felt sense of sitting, the shifting nature of that feeling of sitting or, or lying down. You bring your mind back to the felt sense of breathing the in-breath and the out-breath. Or you can bring your attention to the rising and falling of sound, the ebb and flow, the changing nature of it, the movement. So you sit still, you lie still, you know where you are, and you bring your attention to the experience of movement. You just watch it change, watch it move. If the mind wanders, you bring it back. At some point during this meditation, if you do this anchoring, you will begin to feel steady. You may not necessarily feel blissful or happy or everything is wonderful, but you have a steady feeling. You can let the anchor go and just be here. Watch whatever arises. Maybe thinking, maybe sensations, don't have to stay with the anchor for the whole sit. You're using this felt sense of sitting or the felt sense of breathing or the sound to kind of settle the mind so it can be more focused and it can just stay with the present moment. You have a sense of staying with the present moment.
become less interested in trying to change the present moment and more interested in just what's happening. That's where you want to be. Interested less in trying to stop yourself from thinking or fix the kind of thoughts you have, get rid of some and get others. And you become more interested in knowing your thinking. So I'll sit here for a few minutes and then I'll ring the bell.
a poem by Julie Cadwadler Star entitled Longing. Consider the black pole warbler. She tips the scales at one ounce before she migrates, taking off from the seacoast to our east, flying higher and higher, ascending two or three miles during her 80 hours of flight until she lands in Tobago, north of Venezuela, three days older and weighing half as much. She flies over open ocean almost the whole way. She is not so different from us. The arc of our lives is a mystery too. We do not understand, we cannot see what guides us on our way. That longing that pulls us towards light. Not knowing, we fly onward, hearing the dull roar of the waves below. I don't know how long it's been since I've read that poem, but to you, but one of my favorite, favorite poems, and I read it to myself often, puts my, it puts things in perspective for me. So this is what I'd like to talk about today, how we can put all of this in perspective It's, it's really been gnawing at me over the last few months how everything I see in the news from AI to politics to cultural things, I mean, all of it, almost every day, a new news story comes out and it's all major catastrophic world is about to end news. And it's, it's amazing how it is piling on every single day. This new news story comes out with yet another catastrophic thing coming our way. And the thing that's so striking about it is that it is so far from anything I could do to fix it. And yet everything in me is trying to figure out how to fix that, how to fix this. It really hit me 
yesterday, you know, we've had all this good news about the economy. And uh, then yesterday I read this article that says, don't trust that good news because the doom is coming. It's coming. And I almost burst into laughter. Not because I don't, I don't know whether an economic doom is coming or not. And I don't have any control in my life to stop it, to fix it. I am basically depending on a system that was set up long ago by people I don't even know. <clears throat> they don't even know my culture. They set that system up, and this is their system, and I just live in it. <clears throat> so what is striking, though, is that if I just look at my ordinary life, get up in the morning, like today, I get online, going to teach, when I get through teaching, I'm going to move some wood that's been stuck in my house forever when my son was doing all this, you know, rehabbing. And finally, after five years, that wood is going to leave my house. And I'm going to be out of the construction zone in my little bitty studio. Came five years to get that wood out of my house. But that's fine. This is what's happening in my ordinary life. This got all my nephews coming over to help us move all this stuff out of my storage and my house. That's it. This, this is completely manageable. You know, you wake up with aches and pains. My granddaughter's here. We're gonna have cereal. I mean, it's so ordinary in comparison to the looming doom that's over my head. And I think the Buddha realized there's something amiss here. There's something amiss in a world like this. I am certain this is the world he lived in. He lived in a similar world where there was doom projected out all the time. All was going to be lost. And at the same time, he had a bowl of rice. And, and by the time he was an ascetic, he didn't even have a bowl of rice. He had some rice kernels. You know, he just had to, he just lived with whatever was de he was dealing with at the time. And I think, for those of you that know his history, when he left all that money to go try to figure out what was the point of life, the point of suffering, he thought, oh, we should be happy. That must be the point. So he's like striving to be happy. He could do that. But inevitably, you can get in these very peaceful places. We all may have been in those peaceful places in meditation sometimes, but it will end. And you will be back with the news and the doom and the gloom and panic-stricken again. When he became an ascetic practice, practitioner where he was going to 
just go straight into suffering, all in it. I'm in it, in it, in it, in it, in it. I'm going to stay in it till I bust through the other side. He did that too. Just suffering on top of suffering on top of suffering. He never did bust through the other side. It's just a more of a how much can you bear kind of energy. But he awakened. He did actually liberate himself from suffering. So what is it that he did if it's not finding a peaceful state of mind and if it's not bearing through suffering to the end of it that may or may not ever come, what did he do that caused his mind to liberate? And this is what I, I, I heard Born Eyes video. I saw that video maybe about um, um, Josen Tomori Gibson sent that video to the, his teaching cohort. And I saw that video maybe a couple, about a month ago. And it struck me that it's in your perception. It's in your perception as to how we're, we're liberating our perception of what the world is. I, 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 I don't know how to say this in a way that makes it concrete, but I'm gonna try. So the Buddha framed his teachings around some things he saw in his meditation. He framed it around what's called dependent origination, which is the cyclical nature of suffering, cyclical nature of difficulty. He framed it around what we call the Four Noble Truths, but it was this understanding of what's happening in any given moment and he framed it around the realization that the five skandhas, what we call the five aggregates, body or form, feeling tones, mental formations, consciousness and perception are all distinct and separate aspects that we pull together. As human beings, we have the capacity to pull it all together and, and that pulling together, that cohesion gives us the impression that we are separate, some kind of a thing all by ourselves. And he saw they were all separate things. What that would mean is feeling tones are just feeling tones. But because we feel something is unpleasant or feel something is pleasant, doesn't mean the thing actually is pleasant or unpleasant. It just means we have a feeling about it. And just because something, like I live in an apartment building, just because this apartment building might seem solid and strong and forever, if we don't keep tinkering with it and taking care of it, it will 
fall right down into the ground and turn into dust all over again. There's nothing solid about it. Just because it looks solid and it feels solid, and I'm on, I'm on the upper floor, so uh, it better be solid, or I'm going to be falling down into the ground. The stability of it is held up by this constant pressure that we put in holding it up. So all of these, um, all of these five skandhas he saw were all individual existence, but they did not come together to form a separate self. I want to keep it more simple than that. That's why I consider the black pole warbler. And everything I just said about dependent origination, about the Four Noble Truths, about the skandhas, you could look at it in this more scholarly intellectual way, or you could consider the Black Pole Warbler is saying the exact same thing. So I'm going to show you how, what I mean. So the Black Pole, War, Black Pole Warbler, uh, she tips the scale at one ounce. If you've ever seen a warbler, they're like this big. That means their wings are like this big. And they weigh about an ounce. That is not the big giant birds in the kingdom. They are one of the tiniest birds in the kingdom. That's the way they're born. But in that birth, they have a migration pattern which requires them compels them to fly 80 miles, 80 miles. They have to go up, ascend three miles, and then travel 80 miles to Venezuela. That's where they have to travel. Every year, they do this over and over and over and over. And it takes them half of their body weight to do that. And they fly over ocean. So any tired wings and the letting go of the flapping is going to cause them to drown. So this is a constant flapping. And the ocean below them helps them realize you got to keep the flapping going because you got to get all the way. 80 hours, that's what they fly. 80 hours. 80 hours, constantly flapping over ocean. Now, they didn't ask for this. And many of them, if they are like me, when they get to heaven, they will be complaining about why didn't you give that job to the seagulls? Why didn't you give that job to the big birds? All these big giant birds with big huge wingspans. That would be nothing for them. Why would you give it to this little bitty tiny bird? Such an ordeal. So the fact that they have to do this flight plan, that is dependent origination. It is this cyclical thing that happens, and we live in the human condition, 
And part of our human condition is the implications of greed, hatred, and delusion. It is the nature of, it is an underlying um, tendency, the Buddha said, underlying tendency that we move towards stuff we want, we like, it's pleasurable, got to get that, got to hold it, and we move away. We all know this from just straight practice. But it's seeing it in the framing of this black pole warbler. You might begin to sense there is nothing to be done about that. That cyclical nature of greed, hatred, and delusion leading to suffering is a very cyclical, bred-in tendency towards the human condition. And the arduous path that this black pole warbler has to take every single year, all of them, not one or two of them, every single one of them, when they're born and they're little bitty tiny babies, they will begin that journey, every single one of them. And that cyclical thing Buddha saw, I, he saw it's human conditioning. It is human to go through this. It is bred into this realm that we have to go through this. He also saw that the warbler, I mean, I'm, I'm going to use the warbler, but he saw the five skandhas. It didn't have anything to do with this warbler. It isn't like her wings are somehow perfect for the flight. She got the good wings, and so that's why she can do it. Or her body is built a certain way so that the body itself makes the flight doable. I'm sure that flight, 80 hours, is arduous. And the constant flapping would be arduous for any bird that had to make that kind of flight. There's no specialness to it. It's not, she's not um, separated out from the other birds. She's just a bird. And this is the uh, migration that she has to make. Who knows? Could it come from her ancestors? Could it come from anybody? I don't know. We have to check with St. Peter's and say, what the hell? How did I end up having to do this? So just like all other human beings, we are all born with bodies that are going to start to crumble. Knees are going to start to hurt. doesn't have anything to do with you. Everybody's knees are going to start to hurt at some point. Everybody's going to get bent over, back pain. We're going to have illnesses, bugs, germs, bacteria, all kinds of things are going to come and mess it all up. So some days you're feeling good and we never appreciate it when we're feeling good, body's good. We just act like this is the way it's supposed to be. And then it's not like that anymore. And then something happens and everything changes. It's, it's the nature of it. It's not you. It's the nature of having a human body that has feeling tones, consciousness, perceptions, has memories and thoughts. 
So things are going to just come up and it's just going to happen. But we as human beings do one thing that this black pole warbler does not do. And this is the dukkha that the Buddha was pointing to in the Four Noble Truths. That's my take on it. Take a moment and think about this. You know for yourself, because I know me, and I know I'm probably a lot like you. We would be bitching the entire trip, complaining about every other bird that should be making this trip. We would be grumbling, whining, crying. We'd be miserable. And the journey which we cannot change, would be all the more weighted down for things we cannot even, that are outside of anything that I can control. She's pulled this way, and there's a knowing of this. And what I think the Buddha was pointing to was that we know we are suffering and we're pulled towards getting away from that suffering. But we focus on the wrong thing. We focus on the very thing we have no control over. And we spend our entire lives making the journey Every year, whining, complaining. Then when we land in Tobago, we can't even appreciate that we've landed and we don't have to fly anymore because we're bitching about how much we'd have lost our way to complaining about the journey back and all the food we have to eat to get back home. Because it's not just one way on a migration. You don't just go and stay. You go and then you got to do it a second time. So what I think the Buddha saw was outside of trying to have pleasurable states and get into some pleasurable state outside of dukkha, outside of suffering. Instead of bearing down with the suffering until it just is no more, he realized that there is a way to liberate the mind from its obsession about greed, hatred, and delusion, to liberate the mind from its obsession with trying to have things the way I want it to be. And that if we learn to see outside, to see bigger, the bigger picture, then we could begin to see the truth of the possibility of liberating the mind. That's how we could see it. And so the way he did it was through this Four Noble Truths. This idea that in any given moment, you could recognize that there is suffering. Not suffering because you have to fly across the ocean, but suffering because you're bitching about it and you don't have any choice. 
You got fly across the ocean. You're in the middle of flight. You've already made your plans. Everybody knows what day we're leaving. We're all flying. And you gotta get, it's not the difficulty. My body's hurting. It's not that. That's what we tend to think is the suffering that Buddha was talking about. And we should somehow fix that suffering. No. He was talking about you recognize you are complaining. You are whining, complaining, bitching, whatever you want to call it. You are grumbling or pushing against reality. You are trying to make reality other than what it is. And you're shoving, pushing, ignoring, doing all these things to avoid whatever that difficult task is that's in front of you. Or trying to get yourself in a state that's not where you actually are, but you are avoiding pushing against reality. You are, what you notice is you are suffering. It's a perception. You gotta perceive your suffering. Not do you know that there's pain. Because yes, there is pain in the body this morning. But can you perceive that you are suffering in relation to that pain? This is, this is nuanced. But it is, a, it is the layer of dukkha that the Buddha was pointing to. And if you see, he was saying, there's a cause to that suffering. And the cause is you are basically pushing against reality. That somehow you have to soften into the nature of reality. Soften into the reality itself, even if it's difficult. Soften into it. Not bear into it. I'm just going to bear it. I don't like it, but I'm going to bear it. That's not softening into. It's the softening into recognizing, allowing, realizing. This is way out of my hands. This is just the nature of this human body. This is just the nature of the way things are right now. And what you're letting go of is you're letting go of the pushing to make it otherwise. The grasping or clinging to what you wish was here. And you're letting go of that deluded wanting something else and softening into the truth of what's actually here. And in that softening, you can be free. You can be free. You can have the capacity to make the journey like the warbler can make that journey. And it, is, it doesn't take away the difficulty of the journey, but you make the journey. It's not two journeys you're making both a physical journey and a mental journey that's whining the whole time. It is one journey. Difficult journey, prepare for it, take it on, 
get to Venezuela and be happy, happy, happy. Two more things and then I'll open it up and see if there's any comments or questions. So um, the path, so it's not just there is suffering and there's a cause of suffering, which is our clinging, clinging, grasping for something other than what it is. And this cessation of suffering, which is possible to free ourselves from it completely. There is a path that leads to the cessation. But that's kind of a play on words here, the way this is done. He says, there is suffering. Then he says, there's a reason for the suffering, which is clinging. Then he says that there is the possibility of the cessation of suffering. And then there's a path that leads to the cessation of suffering. But actually what this path is leading to is our ability to see that we are suffering. So what the path does is, it is the thing that helps us see suffering. And if it's the thing that helps us see suffering, then what it's pointing to, and what many of you have probably already seen, like I wasn't even suffering as bad as I am now until I started meditating. And that meditating is actually poking at you, showing you what you're doing in the mind. That's why we feel so much more. That's why people who start meditating, I feel sorry for the secular world because the secular world don't really get Dhamma talks. So they just get the meditation part. So then they start meditating. They're like, oh, I'm going to become more productive. I'm going to be happier. I'm going to be more relaxed. And it's true. You start looking at listening to just sounds gradually and just feel the body breathing. And there is a kind of release that happens. And you're like, oh, this is really nice. I like this meditation. It's kind of calm down. I can see where it works. I'm going to do it more because, you know, more meditation, more peacefulness, right? No. More meditation, more seeing what? Suffering. Suffering, suffering, suffering. And all of a sudden the mind becomes this crazy thing because you're seeing just how much weight you are putting on your ordinary experiences. So you have the Dhamma talk and the Sangha to help you not get tripped up by what you see and you constantly let go of that mental, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And you constantly let go of that second arrow, that mental uh, pain that you're causing. And gradually it leads to um, the cessation. So the way the path, the Eightfold Path, leads to the cessation of suffering is by this intuitive realization that you're going to have to see dukkha. That's what it is that you see. So the more you practice, 
the more sensitive you get to dukkha, the more sensitive you get to harm, the more you can feel it, see it everywhere. Not because it's all miserable, but because you can see suffering and you can see this human life is difficult and it will remain difficult as long as greed, hatred, and delusion exist in the world. And since everyone is not trying to release themselves from greed, hatred, and delusion, it will be a long time. I mean, there's a whole campaign against being woke. So you gotta get that we are working with forces that are just completely not going there. And if they're not going there, okay. We're not going there. I don't know what the woke means, but just the idea that you would say out loud that you are against being awake. I just, something about that tells me, okay, we're in a whole different realm of understanding here. So as practitioners, we have to help each other not get swayed by the difficulty of the job in front of us by the difficulty of the life this human condition breeds. That's what I think the poem that I read to myself all the time to help me remember that, yeah, it's just a hard life or a venerable Panadipa, this uh, African-American monk, Theravada monk, living North Carolina. He said that um, dukkha or suffering is the nature of human condition, right? So he said challenges, bad times, hard life, that's the nature of human condition. So not dukkha, but hard times, bad life, that's the nature of human condition. That's the mashed potatoes of life. It's just the way it is. But dukkha, that is extra. It's the gravy we put over the top of it. And so it kind of gives it a flavor to it, but yeah, we put that on. Potatoes don't come with gravy. We put the gravy on top of the potatoes. The potatoes are just fine without it. But, yeah, we are the ones that add that extra little flavoring to it. So that dukkha that the Buddha is pointing to when he says there is dukkha and there's an end to dukkha, he's not talking about an end to the challenge of being human, how hard life is going to be. We're not going to get to some easy life at the end, finally. We don't have to make that journey anymore. Nope, it's not going to happen. You'll be making it until you die. What changes is you stop adding all the extra weight that makes this journey harder than it has to be. I think I'll stop there. Yes, let's take a moment and just sit quietly for a second here.
Friday. So let's see uh, if there's anybody that has any comments or would like to share anything. <laughs> 